0: Today on the Focus on Why podcast, I am joined by Jackie Handy. Jackie, welcome.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me, Amy. It's great to be here. Thank you.
0: Well, we have only just met this year. So it's it's a new friendship that we formed. And we have had a huge amount of fun online, because obviously, we haven't had a chance to meet in person yet. But we have met through the PSA. And we've been to several events where we've had sort of online giggles. I think quiz tag was probably the greatest moment <laughs> of all time. But ever since then, we've just sort of kept in touch and talked about various things in what we're doing. And that's what I'd like to explore more today with you. So first off, Jackie, what is it that you do?
1: Okay, so I work with organisations globally, helping them to embed inclusion into their culture uh, in terms of the behaviours of every single person within the organisation and to give them a, um, a deeper sense of the importance of their words. Um, and the impact that that behavior and those words can have on those around them that's what I do
0: And you talk about embedding inclusion why is it not already embedded?
1: People like to think it is uh, and that's that's the interesting thing and um, and and I think you know it's one of those, As I say a lot in my training work, you know, we don't know what we don't know. And really, unless you've been, perhaps you've had a lived experience uh, or indeed you've been an observer to something that's felt uncomfortable in some kind of way, you can't really take a judgment as to whether inclusion is embedded in your business. And it's interesting at the moment because uh, this year, I think, has been, of course, for many reasons, a year like no other. Um, and, and, and I think the same has been true in parts of the diversity and inclusion space. And uh, after the sad killing of George Floyd um, in May, I think the world has, I, I don't really like the term woke, but I do think the world has become more conscious of the the microaggressions, the ingrained, indoctrinated, um, uh, exclusive terms and behaviours that are used, and so I do think that um, people now are perhaps ha- have perhaps thought, you know, I thought inclusion was embedded I thought I was inclusive but now I realize that actually due to my own set of circumstances which of course all of our circumstances are unique um, there perhaps have been times where I've behaved or I've spoken in a way that could have excluded somebody or I was going to say at best, but it's not at best, but, you know, at at worst, perhaps, you know, really offended and upset somebody. Um, And and much of that would have been done probably unintentionally. Um, But I, I think, you know, again, talking about the George Floyd situation and of course diversity comes in many forms but this has just been you know heavily prevalent in in uh, in the news and so forth um i think people recognize that you know maybe there have been times that perhaps they've said or done something that uh is is not racist but is also not anti-racist. And that's where the focus is, certainly in terms of race and colour and ethnicity right now. And I recognise that organisations now are starting to have a, a deeper passion for embedding inclusion in all its forms across their culture of their organisation.
0: So it's not enough just to become conscious of it?
1: Right. So, um, I mean, you're probably familiar with the change curve, you know, and the stages of the change curve. And, uh, you know, funnily enough, the first stage of the change curve is, you know, we don't know what we don't know. We're kind of, um, you know, unconsciously incompetent, if you like. It doesn't mean we're stupid. We're just unaware. And, and of course, the movement then, um, I'm sure your listeners uh, understand the change curve as well, but just for clarity, you know, then we start to move into that phase of uh, conscious incompetence. Well, now I become aware of what I didn't know. And and then, of course, uh, I think people are starting to approach that space and even for some moving into that conscious competence which means that you know they're really open to to changing things taking small steps which is what I advocate small steps forward to really make a difference in their business and in their lives and to the people around them and gradually what will happen and it it's like with any new habit that forms we reach a point once we've had that consistency of unconscious competence and that's the point that I'm looking to help organizations reach whereby actually they they now are inclusive without thinking about it there no longer has to be diversity and inclusion strategies in organizations because it kind of sounds like it's a one-time only thing but it it's so much part of uh the embodiment of an organization organization really and uh and its culture so that's the sort of journey that i look to take people on um and to answer your question then in a nutshell no it isn't enough just to be conscious of it um it is the first step however to be mindful of it and then to challenge your own behavior and language and the behavior and language that you see and and witness from others
0: so this is what you're doing now you're helping people become unconsciously competent what is it you were doing before?
1: Um well, I was a recruiter, actually. Um so I was a recruitment consultant um, for around about fifteen years. i um, uh, I helped people find jobs and I helped customers find employees. Um, and and it all sounds very nice, doesn't it? And it was. It was a great, um, a very purpose-filled. Job actually, and um, uh, but but of course it was a heavy sales role. So my job was to sell in a candidate's attributes into an organisation, and vice versa, sell in the organisational attributes into prospective candidates. And I would you know source the candidates. I would arrange interviews and sell them into the client, and then I would manage that kind of uh, job offer process through to the start point. And I did that for many years. I became a manager. Uh, a rather bumbling manager to begin with, but nevertheless, uh, eventually a successful one. And, um, and then, uh, funnily enough, that kind of bumbling manager piece led me uh, several years later into learning and development because um, I was lost. And I think a lot of people are lost when they first go into management because. As with uh, lots of my former colleagues and people that I engage with now, what was happening was, you know, people had perhaps been there the longest they had been successful in their role. And so they were promoted into a role that suddenly they knew nothing about. Right. And um, and so I was lost. I made mistakes. I probably spoke and behaved in ways that were probably not the best if I'm honest and um and in order to get the best out of my people if that makes sense so I um I, I wasn't doing that as as well as I could have and then I received some great training and the organization I worked for were brilliant in the training field which kind of also inspired me to move into learning and development with them and and importantly, I put some of the training into practice. Yeah, shock horror. Um, so it's nice to know that some people actually do. And when I did, I noticed a profound change, um, a change in how I felt about a leadership role, and also the the change that was then seen in the people in my team. And um, I, I don't even like saying in my team. We we were a team together, and um, uh, and and then. Uh, I don't know if you wanted this level of detail, but in 2000, and uh, I I started in recruitment in 1998. Uh, I was very young. And, um, And then in 2008, of course, seven, eight, we had the financial crash. And uh, and suddenly, you know, one, one of the things that you notice when you work in recruitment is that you're the first to know when an economic uh, downturn is occurring and the first one of the first to know when there's an economic upturn. And so we we lost a lot of business as an organization and, and as a team uh, overnight and we had been hugely successful. Uh, and so my role as a manager uh, changed it had to change um, and and so I sometimes referred to myself as the accidental coach and motivator because um, it was either lose my people because um, you know they were struggling frankly or or um, change my approach and become less selfish because I had my own sales target, but, but I recognized at that moment that, that actually they were more important and I had to invest. If I invest in my people, then they will, uh, perform they will be motivated and so on and so forth and engaged so that's what I did and it turns out <laughs> I was actually quite good at it and and more than that perhaps but I really enjoyed it and I was very fulfilled by it to 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 really unlock people's potential in times of of uh, kind of economic hardship so we got through and we got through reasonably unscathed um, and then because I'd been a successful manager, uh, you wouldn't think this was a reward, but I was invited to go and scale mountains in the Austrian Alps for five days and uh, find myself, quote unquote, with a group of about 12 colleagues. And um, and whilst I was hanging off the edge of a cliff, frightened out of my wits, I realised uh, I had a bit of a moment um, where I realized actually what I wanted to do was to go into learning and development I wanted to help more people like I'd been able to support my my unique uh, team members uh so long story short End of 2010, I moved into learning and development, and boy, isn't it interesting when you do what you love? Um, I thrived, and I thrived almost immediately in that role. I was hugely successful almost from day one, and and I, I say that not from arrogance, just from that pure joy. Actually, it was so fulfilling, and I would teach you know um, new recruits uh, how to be a recruiter, um, and then I was invited only a year and a half later to move into management development because I'd been very successful. And of course, as I mentioned, the training was so brilliant that I was thrilled to become a part of it and redesign and improve and develop that further. So I did that. um, And just a year later, I was promoted to the head of management development where I was now leading the strategic vision and the developmental goals for the entire global business um, uh, from sort of new managers right the way up to senior directors uh and once again I thrived in that role um and I know we're talking about sort of the why really and this is just part of my why but kind of a corporate why to the the step that I took then at the end of 2013 and I realized I didn't actually want there was one other move I could make um and that was to the head of learning and development as a whole and that inspired me less, to be honest. So I decided I didn't really want to do that, but I did want to go out, see the world, work and inspire and develop more and more people um, with their leadership skills, their sales skills, and so forth. And so I I said it out loud, I remember saying to my, my partner now wife um, at the time, just one night I said, I wanna start my own business. And I actually thought she was going to say, what are you kidding? You know, but actually she said in her wonderful supportive way, I think that's a great idea. And um, probably about three or four months later, that was it. I, I set up my business, which is called runway global limited. um, And, uh, and and I decided to call it that because I wanted to work globally. I never really had, but I wanted to. And um, and the runway was a bit like that accelerator. You know, it's the airport runway rather than the catwalk. And um, and so I wanted to help people really accelerate their potential, um, you know, uh, all those kind of lovely cliches about, you know, reaching for the sky and all the rest of it. And um and, you know, it was so interesting because in that first year of self-employment, I worked in seven countries around the world and I just never thought that would happen. And I really believe that in some strange way I manifested that, you know, um, just through the title of my business. And um, and I've been doing that ever since. Um, although I'm going to pause for a moment, but uh, because obviously my business has slightly changed direction into the inclusion space. But I'll, I'll pause for a moment. I've talked a lot.
0: That's great. And, and I remember when we've spoken before that we have got this parallel world of both being in recruitment at the same time, which was, you know, it's, it's great. And you described it as your the first job working in recruitment as being purpose filled. Now, did you are you looking back or at the time, did you know that it was purpose filled or are you just looking back and seeing that now? Because I don't remember having that sort of purpose piece being around us, being aware of that at the time.
1: I think that's another great question. I think in part, yes, I'm looking back. Um, In part, however, I I always thought it was very interesting that um, when people came for interviews to become recruitment consultants, I mean, I I'd been a holiday rep. I stepped off a plane, walked into an agency and said, if you've got any jobs, I can sell. I know people. And they said, hey, fancy working for us. And that was it, you know, 15 years later. But anyway, and that's the story for a lot of recruiters, as you'll probably uh, know. But um, but I think that that whole, um, when people were used to come for. Actual interviews for recruiter roles. Um, there was very much, and this is back in the day, there were very there was very much a focus on whether somebody was target-driven, sales focused, proactive to get on the phone, and it was all geared around the sales process. And and that I thought was very, very interesting. And I still think that looking back, but I did at the time because I thought, you know, actually, this is a role where helping people is the ultimate purpose, whether that's the client or whether that is the candidate, and yet, woe betide! And I take nothing away from the companies I worked with, but I think it was it was very much a general consensus that woe betide anybody say I'd like to be a recruitment consultant because I want to help people. That was seen as a big no-no, and and I think that world actually is changing a little bit to recognise that you know when you come from a place of deep purpose you, you can train the other stuff. You can train people to make calls. You can train people to time manage, etc. But, but to have that innate purpose of wanting to support making somebody's life better, you can't train that. Not really. You know, that just comes from within. And, and I think there's a, there was always a deep sense of um, people saying to me, you know, why, why is it that you're so good at this (laughs) and and interestingly when I looked around at the cohorts I mean of course there's hundreds and hundreds thousands of people that work in this space but it seemed to be um, and it's a sweeping generalization um, but in my world at that time it seemed to be that people that had come from a background whereby there'd been some form of struggle I will use that term. Um, we could say challenge. We could say hardship. Whatever. That seemed to be a driving force, and it was for me. You know, I I came from a family, very loving family. I still have that loving family. I'm lucky to say, um, but a family that financially were not particularly affluent. And so I, it had been instilled in me to have a strong work ethic very early on, and 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 that was that was a massive driver of my success and I still believe that to to this day that that is something that's that was instilled in me at an early age and has stayed with me for the rest of my life and I hope it never leaves me actually Um, I can't see that happening because it's just part of me you know Um, so yeah does that answer your question but I, I think you know that's kind of how it felt for me
0: And what I'm seeing also is that your role in recruitment wasn't enough because you you said you wanted to work and inspire and develop with as many people as possible. So when you're working one to one, finding roles for one to one, that's great. You're changing their lives, but one by one, whereas you seem to want to work with more people and have a bigger impact.
1: Yeah, I, I kind of think why wouldn't you, right? If you can if you can touch more people in in one go, as it were, um, then why wouldn't that be appealing to somebody that loves to support and help people, right? Um, and um, and so, yeah, I, I think just that that move into learning and development made a massive difference to me, and um, uh, and then you know sort of later on moving into the DNI, the Diversity and Inclusion space, has made a phenomenal difference to me yeah
0: and you're sat talking to me in front of a map <laughs> of the world and I can't help but obviously seeing runway global you know it, it just makes sense because you've just got the whole world behind you what is the dream
1: oh I mean you know the the map and I, I may have told you this before Amy but my my map represents the fact that um, yes I think there's a whole world out there and uh, the more digital we become and actually perhaps this year we've been able to see how small this world can be and how easy not easy but how much more easier it can be to touch the lives of people around the world but the map also represents the the uniqueness of every one of us in that we all have our own unique map of the world right uh perspectives experiences belief systems and values um and uh so Yeah, I I forgot the question because I got so engrossed in uh, telling you about my map. Um, But, you know, it's uh, it's a hugely uh, representative of who I am and and what I do. Ah, I remembered the dream. What's the dream? Um, You know, I I genuinely believe I'm living that dream, that the dream is to do what I love every day, to do something that gives me energy and uh, to be able to make a living doing that while still fulfilling that purpose of supporting others in terms of their understanding, in terms of their development and in terms of accelerating their own potential uniquely in the way that is going to enhance their life because that enhances my life by consequence.
0: And you've niched into an area which is diversity and inclusion as a result of your experiences and and sort of personal experiences. Explain how important it is that the world is of or full of diversity and
1: inclusion. Sure. Well, I mean, honestly the world already is full of diversity right uh as just said we all have a unique map of the world um diversity is indeed all around us leveraging that diversity however uh, in a space that uh is cultivated to welcome everybody's opinion views beliefs in a in equal uh way that that's sort of true inclusion i guess and uh, and I can tell you the story as to why it's important to me because I speak about it publicly now. Um, and this is kind of a, uh, just to preempt your, is that looking back or forward type question? Um, this is a very looking back and, and now taking that and, and taking it forward. So, um, I, um, well, you probably can tell because I told you about my wife. So, um, you know, I'm gay and, um, and I realised that at a very early age. Uh-huh. Um, <clears throat> truth be told, I probably realised that before I hit puberty because I had strange crushes on female teachers, which... Um, looking back I'm not quite sure why but anyway um, and and then um, so I think it became a thing you know where where there was a label attached to it probably when I was around 13 or 14 and um, uh, I'm I'm an only child Um, my I was raised as Catholic and 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 those two things Uh, presented quite a challenge of course because I had no siblings to bounce off or discuss it was just me and mum and dad and uh of course homosexuality is uh, is a sin in the Catholic faith and so and and my mum especially um, is a very strict Catholic and so I was extremely frightened at that point in my life because I didn't want to be this person with this label and uh and I couldn't do anything about it I um, I went out with <laughs> I, in, in just a few years I went out with um, quite a few boys I have to say and um, uh, didn't do anything I shouldn't have been at that kind of age but certainly I was desperate to fall in love with a boy and it, 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 it just didn't happen now you know somebody that was uh, hugely opposed and thinking that this was a, a life choice may argue that well how do you know at 13, 14? Um, I knew. And uh, it, it just didn't feel right at all. Um, uh, and uh, and I, I, I sent my apologies to all those boys I wasted their time with. But anyway. Um, and, and so when I got to around 15, um, I eventually opened up to a couple of friends at school who um, were good friends um, and they were reasonably accepting of it you know this new strange thing it was it was a bit like you know the only gay in the village type thing and um, but what they did do is is what teenagers do and I don't hold it against them is they they talked you know they told other people and all the rest of it. And, um, and before I knew it, you know, it was kind of around the school and unfortunately not everybody was, uh, quite so understanding. The names were called the laugh and the finger pointing and so forth. And, um, and my behavior had changed, you know, um, I, I'd gone from being quite an extroverted young, young girl, uh, young teenager to, uh, reasonably withdrawn, to be honest. And I see that only looking back again and, um, and my parents noticed, my parents noticed something was different and it wasn't just that sort of cheeky teenager kind of thing. And so um, I, I tell people the story of, um, you know, when I came out of the closet because I didn't really, it was, I was kind of dragged out of the closet. Um, my, my parents sat me down one night and they basically said, look, I, I was going out to meet some friends and I actually did have my my first girlfriend at the time. Um, so that was all very exciting. Um, but they said, right, you're not going out until we know what's the matter and uh and I thought and I literally thought I uh, my life's over my life's over they'll find out they'll throw me out they'll stop loving me uh and you know we were and thankfully still are very close family so this was just a devastating moment you know And I sat there and um and and then I, I just kept saying things like, oh, there's nothing wrong with me, you know, no, I'm fine. and That bravado coming through. But of course, you know, parents know, those that love you, they they know when something's not quite right. And 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 so my dad eventually said, look, you come with me. He said, we'll leave your mum here. He said, um, you come with me. And we had a garage that was detached from our house. So it's like walking down the end of the garden. So I had to follow him. And it was, you know, it was a bit like the walk of shame, really. And I thought, gosh, I've just no idea what's going to happen next. And when we got in that garage, uh, my dad started to guess <laughs> what was wrong. And um, and he he asked me several quite deep questions. He asked me uh, if I was pregnant. He asked me if I was being abused. He asked me if I was on drugs. And of course, you know, all of those things made me think, wow, you know, there's a real worry that there's something horrific potentially um, at play here. And, and it It was a really interesting thing because, again, am I looking back or was that in the moment? I don't know. But certainly um, he eventually just because I I, I said, look, you know, if I tell you, will you still love me? And, you know, all those kinds of things. And of course, I was crying and it was terrible and everything. And he just suddenly clicked his fingers and he said, you know, you think you're queer, don't you? And and I said, I know I am, Dad. I know I am, and uh, and of course I broke down, and uh, and the, the the biggest example, and I use this when I speak on stages now. The biggest example of inclusion was right there and then, when he um, and it, it gets me now, right? He and and he opened up his arms, and he gave me a hug, and he said, "Is that all?" and um, Now, obviously, it wasn't all, (laughs) you know, but in that moment, despite what he might have been feeling, and I can imagine that he too was filled with dread, actually, at what the future might hold, not just for them, but more so for me and what my life would now have in store, having this different lifestyle. Um, Yet in that moment... I say to people, love prevailed right in that moment. And that is what inclusion is. It's love, even if you don't understand what it is you're loving. It's love even if you don't know if you want to love, right? That is inclusion right there. And um, you know, long story short, we um uh we we told mom, well he did, I ran upstairs and hid, and then he told mom, and there was a silence when I heard him say it, and uh, uh, I thought she'd passed out but she hadn't I think she was just taking it in and and then you know from from there you know conversations and discussions uh, happened my parents have always been good talkers um, you know good conversationalists so they'll seek to understand which is such a an important thing and you know my mum has reconciled that her faith with her love for me and you know and that's been unwavering and in fact both have been unwavering um she's come to terms with that and um and I I wonder sometimes you know it's interesting isn't it when you hit certain pivotal moments in your life and it's a bit a sliding doors moment isn't it you know what would have happened if and I've I've always felt incredibly grateful for my parents' love and understanding, even if it it challenged them in a way that they didn't truly understand at that time. And um, so this is a a long story to talk about this journey, but you know, people think, you know, this would have been 19, blimey, uh, 1986, 87, something like that, And, you know, it was only in the early 90s, sorry, in the early 80s that we had things like the first Pride March, um, you know, AIDS awareness and so on. And um, so I still when I was sort of um, probably 17, but I'll say 18 because it was legal then when I went out to bars and so on. And I eventually started to find, you know, as was gay bars, um, you know, you still had to knock on a door. And to see if you'd be allowed in, you know, for safety measures and levels of gay bashing. So but but it's not altogether that much different now. And that's the sad thing. 30, 40 years on, nearly, um, you know, there are still people experiencing prejudice and discrimination because of their sexuality, because of their gender identity. And of course, all other elements of diversity you know race um, as we know most recently um, has come to our, our awareness those with disabilities hidden and otherwise you know there are so even just gender as well you know um, male female divide so my absolute purpose now and it was joining the PSA two years ago I um I I actually started to talk about my own story, part of what I've just shared with you. And and I realised, because I put myself out there in a reasonably safe community, but I still wasn't sure how it would be received. And you can probably imagine there's a whole lot more to the story, but those are the key points. And it was actually received with um, kindness and uh, at least attempted understanding. And, And so it gave me courage i think you know I, I sort of then thought you know i'm in my mid 40s now um uh, and if i can't talk about this now because i'm not ashamed of who i am uh, it's felt um it's felt very challenging at times and um you know all those years in recruitment i never came out of the closet until the latter years when i met my now wife 13 years ago so you know i i still hid part of myself for the for, for the fear of repercussions you know the bullying again the um the being held back from promotions and not really being seen for my ability and seen instead for my the labels that people gave me um so now it's so important to me to help organizations realize the power of their language and behavior this is where it goes we've gone full circle right um so that People experiencing any kind of difference in their life, whether they're a child really coming out of the closet or somebody with a whole different story. But so they can, uh, with safety and with, um, with, with being welcomed, really, can step out into the world without fear of reprisal. for for that identity and whether that identity is something that is inbuilt as I believe my sexuality is is inbuilt I don't believe there was choice or whether I had made a choice so what if I had made a choice identity doesn't seek to harm anybody it seeks to free people and and if we can't feel free as who we are then something isn't quite right in this world, is it? I'll pause.
0: <laughs> well, well, Jackie, thank you for sharing that. And, and you know, I can see how emotional just describing those moments, uh, all those years ago, still sort of evokes all of that. It, it must have been really difficult. I, I can, I can sort of sense that. And what I'm, I'm sort of hearing is. Is diversity and inclusion the right words or is it a case of freedom, love, kindness, belonging that would actually sort of encapsulate really, essentially it comes
1: down to love? A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, you know, let's, I'll be, I'll be honest about this, you know, because I'm a corporate girl from a corporate world and um, I hope there will be listeners that can, uh, this, this, that this resonates with, because ultimately, yes, inclusion is love. It's unconditional love, like um, you would hope a parent has for a child, even a pet owner has for their beloved, you know, pet, Um, but it's an unconditional love regardless. Um, Unfortunately, I think if I was to go into, you know, big corporate organization and say, hi, I'm Jackie Handy. I'm here to spread some love across your organization. I think they kind of freak out a little bit um, because love is something that's not used in the corporate world um, enough actually. Um, so so yeah, you're right, Amy, it, it is about love. It is about freedom. And I do use the term belonging because, um, you know, <sighs> There's loads of cliches about diversity. Is inviting someone to your party, blah 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 blah. But you know, diversity for me is simply our difference. It's just that unique map of the world that we all have. So that's diversity. Inclusion is is feeling valued for that difference, feeling embraced from that difference, and and then belonging is 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 something that is felt. That is it. You cannot simply say to somebody you are being included, they have to feel that within, that they feel safe to to open up to to, to people around them about who they are, Um, good, bad, indifferent, you know. Um, They they have to feel valued for their contribution. Um, and, And they just, people have to be made to feel like they have a place of worth because if I had not felt that I had and been made in that moment with my dad to have had that place of worth I genuinely don't know if I'd still be here I mean that you know because they there are some statistics and they've been around a while so I don't know if there's any change in it but certainly you know if you fall into one or more minority group you are twice as likely to self-harm and and one in four people that fall into one or more minority group have considered or attempted suicide. So, you know, these, these are real statistics um, that come just simply from a lack of love. And so uh, there can be, for me, no stronger why as to what I do. If I can make a difference I know I've said, why wouldn't I want to many? But actually, if I can make a difference to just one person and, you know, I teach organisations to take away the boxes, to understand what the boxes mean to the individual, but actually to look at the person, the human being to the left and to the right of them and to seek to understand them and their identity and the language that they prefer used when describing them, pronouns and so forth, but also the behaviours that they need to feel that their contribution matters, to feel loved and to feel as though they belong. Because it doesn't matter what the box is, it matters the person in front of us at any given moment in time. And that. Amy is simply why I do what I do right now well
0: um, I've, I've written it down I write notes of notes while I'm, I'm listening to what you're saying and the the belonging the B for the belonging and the I for inclusion and the D for diversity spells bid and I see like you've got this bid for freedom you've got this bid for love and I absolutely love it Jackie and I can see how how much it's going to be spreading across the corporate world and and I do feel that there is a, an opportunity for that corporate barrier to sort of come down at some point because essentially we we all show up at work as individuals and together we become that sort of corporate entity but essentially we're just people and we are all living these lives and I think that's the one thing that we've discovered as in this digital world that we are living in this year and that COVID has brought to us is actually I think sort of companies have become a lot more humane.
1: Yeah I, I say to people Um, when I work with them that you know it's it's a journey and it's just simply about starting that journey with one step and you know I genuinely feel that if everyone on the planet had taken one step forward towards creating and cultivating these environments based on love and belonging wow wouldn't the planet already be in a different place you know Um, so it it doesn't happen overnight. It does take a concerted effort from organisations, and you know, uh, I, I I do think you're right in that the world is waking up to this, and I hope that organisations do start to. Uh, just remember really i mean not not every organisation is bad for this of course but you know more and more to make it become more habitual in organisations that um that that love and belonging are prevalent factors in businesses because people spend so much of their their life at work, and um, and especially right now, you know, when the organisations that have been focusing on the health and well being of their people and showing them love, you know, they are the ones that have. Um, whether they've been able to thrive will depend on many factors, but certainly they are the ones that will survive and come out better. I'm convinced of that in the long run because those people feel valued, and that. That's what we all want in life, isn't it? You know, to feel that we have a place, that our, that we're valued and our contribution matters. So you see how these things just simply go hand in hand.
0: Well, Jackie Handy, I see exactly how it goes hand in hand. And how will people get in contact with you? Uh,
1: thank you, Amy. Well, um, I'm sure you'll put my links and things like that on the um, on your website with the with the podcast. Um yeah, my my website is simply jackiehandy.com. I have a little book called The Little Book of Belonging as well, which is your weekly guide to inclusive habits, which is a really lovely reflective book, actually. It doesn't dictate how you should do stuff, but it gets people focusing on their journey and their small steps. Um, And uh, so, yeah, you can find that through my website as well. I'm on YouTube, Jackie Handy. And if you're in the corporate world, then you'll find me on LinkedIn. Again, Jackie Handy, Uh, you will find me.
0: (laughs) Well, I'll make sure that all of those links go into the show notes and of course the little book of belonging which is actually not a book it's a flip book
1: it is yeah it actually sits very so that's why it's only available on my website so thank you for reminding me to say that uh yeah it's a desktop book so um it's lovely actually because it's designed every week you turn the page there's a reflection and a question that helps people on that journey so uh nice little stocking filler as well if uh, if we get this out for christmas i don't know but certainly you, you know it doesn't matter when you start just start so that's what i would say oh and just one other thing and that is some um, uh, i know you You might know this, Amy, but I've done a TEDx as well called The Exclusive Nature of Inclusion. Uh, So check that out as well.
0: Well, I'll put that link in as well. And Jackie, it's been an absolute privilege sharing your why with the audience today. I really have enjoyed hearing all about your sort of past and and how it's sort of brought you to where you are today. So thank you very much for sharing some very personal moments.
1: Oh, that's been my pleasure. Uh, Thank you again, Amy, for inviting me on this podcast. And I hope. Your listeners enjoy the story.
0: Well, I'm sure they will. And have you got some final words for them today, please?
1: Yeah, you know, um, I've always got words, haven't I? But but funnily enough, I find myself thinking maybe I've said everything that needs to be said. You know, um, in a world that challenges us uh, regularly in our own unique ways, uh, love always prevails. So, you know, I leave that again, small steps. That's all it takes, small steps.
0: Thank you for listening to the Focus on Why podcast. I'm Amy Rowlandson. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave me a five star Apple podcast review. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Instagram and Facebook and become a member of my inspiring, uplifting and positive Focus on Why Facebook group. I help people to focus on their why with clarity, uniting their passion with their purpose with a plan to create the life they truly desire. If you would like me to help you focus on your why, then please book a free 20-minute coaching call via candidly.com forward slash Amy Rowlandson. And if you haven't already, please sign up for the Friday Focus weekly newsletter via my website, amyrollinson.com. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why.